Hey, this is Taylor and welcome back to another message from Elevate Retake. We are in our series, Rethinking Church, and the title of this sermon is, I've Got the Joy, 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 Joy. Now we are going to be looking at many key texts. It is 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17, through chapter 3, verse 13, and I am going to just read the last part of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Starting with verse 17, it reads, Dear brothers and sisters, after we were separated from you for a little while, though our hearts never left you, we tried very hard to come back because of our intense longing to see you again. We wanted very much to come to you, and I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. After all, what gives us hope and joy, and what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus when he returns? It is you, yes you, are our pride and joy. Your engaged question as you listen to this sermon is, when was the last time you rejoiced? Welcome home. There's always room for one more. Glad to see you this morning. This summer, we are rethinking church. We're diving in this series together. Question was asked just a moment ago, when was the last time you rejoiced? You think about that for a moment. When was the last time you rejoiced? Not just the, oh, I'm so happy, so very happy. No, 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 no. This is like you throw the phone across the room, smile ear to ear. You don't care who's around you. You're raising your arms and shouting because something has happened that has caused a joy inside of you to come out. When was the last time you rejoiced? This theme of joy and rejoicing is not a theme that I was expecting to come out of the book of 1 Thessalonians. I will say I was caught by surprise this week as I was reading through and processing Scripture again and again. New things come out, right? You can read a passage and all of a sudden there's something new that pops out of it that you've never seen before. And a big theme throughout 1 Thessalonians is this concept of joy and rejoicing. Let me tell you one thing that I'm super joyful about today. Some of you may remember a few months ago, it was about mid-March, we had a guest preacher coming in by the name of uh, Andrea Jacobson, and she mentioned, hey, something's happened in the Gibson family medically, we want to lift them up in prayers. And I told you the next week that my wife's grandmother had suffered a stroke. Well, by God's grace, she's here this morning. By God's grace, she's here. Yeah, we can give it up. Now, let me tell you, she's someone who loves attention and and public uh, recognition. She doesn't at all, but she's sitting right down here in the front. And Grams, we're super glad that you're here and doing so much better than she was just a couple months ago. And I want to thank you for your prayers. I know many of you have been praying for that. Maybe some of you have been watching online have been doing the same. So that brings joy to my heart this morning to see her walk into this building. But when was the last time you rejoiced? We just, as a community, experienced a moment of joy. And it seems that those moments of joy are defining of our life experience. When you think back over the sum of the years that you've spent on the third dot from the sun, there's moments of sadness, there's moments of sorrow. But likely in your life, there are moments that have defined who you are that are the only way you could describe them is through the concept of joy. And Paul has one of those moments. Paul, Silas, 
and Timothy have it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. So I invite you to turn in your scriptures with me today, whether you brought your Bible in a hard copy or you're scrolling on your device. It doesn't matter wherever you're looking at. Maybe it's even on the screen for you. It's all good. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 through 20 today. We're only looking at four verses today before we, we have to catch this in our journey through Thessalonians. As you're turning there, uh, I remember back, it was the, the summer of, of 2015. My wife at the time, who had just become my girlfriend, we were enjoying a summer together. It was uh, a summer where I was doing field school uh, right here at this church. Some of you may remember uh, uh, Pastor Austin and I were over in the chapel. We had a, an evangelistic series. And uh, there came a time in my schooling which required me to go uh, spend some time down in San Antonio for the summer, and Melissa would stay here uh, in Keene. And I remember in our, uh, the time that we spent apart, we, 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 we shared a, a last time together, I think it was a Friday morning or something before we headed down, and we were sitting on a, some steps outside of the, the gym, we had gone for a walk that morning, and we were talking back and forth, and we said, isn't it a crazy way to begin a dating relationship uh, just after one month we, we split apart? And we're like, you know, actually, this is, this is going to work out. This is going to be cool. Then it'll help strengthen uh, our, our bond together. You know, the old saying, distance makes the heart grow fonder, right? So we were leaning into that and we were embracing that. And we decided, hey, you know, we'll, we'll call each other regularly and, and, and send text messages and stuff. But being the old souls that we were, say, hey, let's... let's Right, and she, she gave me a look because really I'm the old soul. She's the young one, I'm the old soul. Let's write some letters back and forth while we're apart. Now, for us, that was a choice. Some of us sitting in the room, you didn't have a choice when you were separated from your loved one at the very beginning of your relationship. You had to write letters. There was, there was no other thing. Phone calls are too expensive. Um, it, telegrams were too expensive. I don't know, did anybody do that? <laughs> That's too old, right? Too old. We're writing letters back and forth, and maybe you've written those letters yourself, but I remember writing those letters, and, you know, we would tell each other about what's going on, and, you know, we had talked on the phone or whatever, but throughout the, the, the string that ran throughout that letter was a frustration with the time of separation, but a thankfulness that we could still communicate. And throughout those letters, also a looking forward to the one day that we would be reunited, and we were only apart for like, it was like a month, but it felt like an eternity. It was only a month. But we looked forward to that day that we would, we would come back together. And that idea, that concept is what Paul and his fellow writers of this letter are expressing towards the church in Thessalonica. He writes this way, the closing verses of chapter two. Dear brothers and sisters, after we were separated from you for a little while, though our hearts never left you, we tried very hard to come back because of our intense longing to see you again. Those are some heartfelt words, some passion coming from the hearts of Paul, Silas, and Timothy. We looked last week as, that, as they just have used the, the images of mothers and fathers and said, when we were with you, we were like mothers to you, we were like fathers to you. And then they say, dear brothers and sisters, Continue the, the image of the familial bond, that family closeness. They say, dear brothers and sisters, we were separated from you for a little while. And 
the word separated in English kind of, you know, makes you think back or makes me think back to that summer of 2015 where Melissa and I were separated for a couple of weeks. But the intent of this original word was to describe the broken relationship of a child who had lost their parents. In other words, Paul, Simon, Silas, and Timothy are writing to the church in Thessalonica and saying, we've been orphaned. So separated that it feels like maybe we are not going to come back. And in the term orphan in English distinctly uh, corresponds to the child who has lost parents. But the Greek word is broad enough to include also the parent who has lost a child. Paul, Silas, and Timothy say we've been separated we've, to the extent that we are like parents without children and you are like children without parents. Some of us this morning may relate to that all too well. And you remember within the context of, of this letter as he's writing to the church in the Thessalonians, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they did not spend very long in Thessalonica. Scholars debate whether it was a couple of weeks or a couple of months, but it was a very, very short time. The way I read Acts, it makes it seem like Paul was only there for three weeks. But before the, the political uh, uprising came up and he was literally run out of the city and had to go on to Berea to continue working the gospel. Think about that bond that Paul had with those people. Three weeks in a city, pouring his heart out to them to be yanked from that community and the heartache, the separation that he felt, the circumstances that separated them. Each member felt as if the family had broken up, that there was some, no longer, we, we had a place for Paul at the table, but now that we break bread together, the place where Paul would usually sit is empty. The chair next to him and the chair next to him. And we feel that, right? For some of us, we, particularly around Thanksgiving and around Christmas, we, we set out the table. We remember the times that our loved ones were with us. And maybe it's with a lump in our throat as we prepare and we look and we say, that's the place that my husband was, my wife was, my son, my daughter, grandma, grandpa and we yearn for those broken relationships. The separation that we've experienced with someone, maybe it's relational, but maybe it's even death, and we feel that emotion. That separation says like, man, we can't even, can this even come back together? But Paul has hope. He says, we were separated from you physically, but you can bet your bottom dollar our hearts have never left you. He picks up this concept that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 10, 28. Uh, Jesus says, don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Now, Paul isn't dead. There's nobody in Thessalonica that has died. But I think the principle still applies. We don't have to worry about bodily separation. We do have to worry about is spiritual separation. But even though we're separated in these circumstances, Paul says, our hearts are with you. Our hearts are with you. We long to be with you. Don't you worry. Even though some may say, I left you behind in the dust when things got difficult. No, don't you worry. Our hearts continue 
to be with you. Even if we aren't with you in body, you bet we're here with you in spirit. And I love the language that he uses in this verse. Verse 17, he gets down to the end of 17 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And he says, we tried very hard to come back. We're going to talk about that in a moment. We tried very hard to come back because of our intense longing to see you again. We've been separated, but there's this longing desire in our heart. One of the many blessings, uh, and I could spend all day up here, I'm not going to, but the many blessings that my wife has given to me over uh, the several years that we've been married is the appreciation for the language of Portuguese. Originally from Brazil, she's been teaching me some words. And this longing, this desire, in English it's hard. We have to string a whole bunch of stuff together and say intense longing and all that. But I love the word, and you can look it up and do some reading about it, saudades in Portuguese. It's this longing desire, this nostalgia, this idea that there's this deep emotional state of nostalgic longing for seeing someone or something. That's the language that Paul uses here. This intense longing, the desire of all desires. And that's a a classic Jewish way of saying the most of the most. You would say uh, one particular noun and say it was the the king of kings, right? That's the, the kingiest of all kings. The song of songs, the most desirous of desires. That's what we feel towards you, dear church. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are pouring out their hearts towards these people, but something isn't right. There's something that has caused this separation. And Paul, Silas, and Timothy turn in verse 18. And they say this, we wanted very much to come to you. Do you think they wanted to come to him? Like they keep saying it over and over again, right? And I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. The longing, the desire that Paul has in his heart causes them in the writing of this letter. Imagine Paul, Silas, and Timothy are gathered around writing this letter. And and I don't know if it was Paul writing or Silas and Timothy or somebody. And and Paul says, whether he's writing or he's dictating towards someone, he's like, let them know I want to come back. Uh, we, We can write this letter together, but put my name down that I, Paul, want to come again. And I've tried again and again, but Satan has prevented us. Satan has, has got in the way. It's a splash of cold water on the story, right? Because we expect, we tried again and again, and now we've finally come to you. But there's something that's gotten in the way of these dear, beloved souls reaching back towards the church in Thessalonica. The word prevented, or in other translations, use the word hindered. It's got military overtones. And to the extent that it's like an, an army that has destroyed a road to block the way of invaders. That Satan has set up something that Paul keeps trying and keeps trying, but keeps running into difficulty. And it's interesting to note that Paul doesn't regularly mention Satan in his letters. He's not kind of a, a constant person there, but he's always in the background. And when he does mention Satan, the Satanas, the, the devil, the evil one, it's always a, a supernatural being and describes the essence of evil. And here's a flavor of what Paul thinks 
about the devil or Satan. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. When I forgive whatever needs to be forgiven, I do so with Christ's authority for your benefit so that Satan will not outsmart us, for we are familiar with his evil schemes. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. And this isn't Paul, but Peter adds his view of the devil to the mix and says, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. And we'll throw one in uh, for extra. I kind of like how Paul phrases this in Romans chapter 16, verse 20. The God of peace, the God of peace, we regularly say that in our blessing, right? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet. Now think of that image real quick. The God of peace crushing Satan under his feet. And by the way, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Kind of makes me laugh. That's ultimately what God is going to do to Satan. Satan is the ultimate ultimate enemy of God's people and of God. And he does every single thing he can to distract and cause us to turn against others and against God. And we don't know specifically what hindered Paul from going back to the church in Thessalonica, other than to say that Satan was the one that hindered him. And scholars debate back and forth, and we could spend some time and conjecture about what that specific hindrance might be. But I love how the commentator John Stott puts it in his commentary on the message of First and Second Thessalonians. He puts, it, he puts it this way. Since we lack this information, it is better for us to confess our ignorance than express an unwarranted confidence. I think that's applicable to this text, and we just kind of, okay, Satan hindered, and we move on, but also applicable to many, many, many things in life that we could just say, I don't know, instead of charging forward with an unwarranted confidence. But here's the thing. We've got to unpack this a little bit further to understand the, the, the roles that are being played out here as Satan is hindering Paul's return to the church in Thessalonica. And to maybe unpack that a little bit more today, we turn to the prophet Daniel. Back to the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. Daniel is sick to his stomach because he's gotten word that impending doom is coming and his concern is for the people of Israel. He's gotten a view toward the end, and he's like, this is not going to bode well. And so he bows down on his knees, and he prays day and night. He says, God, please help me understand. And finally, a day comes when an angel comes to visit him, and this is what the angel says in Daniel chapter 10, verse 12. Then he said, don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your request has been heard in heaven. I have come in answer to your prayer. Pause right there for a moment. Since the day you prayed, Daniel, your prayers have ascended to heaven. God has heard you. But here's the challenge, verse 13. But for 21 days, the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia blocked my way. Then Michael, one of the archangels came to help me, and I left him there with the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia. And he finishes his thought in verse 14. 
Now I'm here to explain what will happen to your people in the future, for this vision concerns a time yet to come. There's this unseen battle going on in the background, both in Daniel's time and in Paul's time. And here's a quick thought about prayer. God hears our prayers. As soon as we pray, even before we utter the words out of our mouth, God hears our prayers. But he is not the sole supernatural actor at work in this world. And there's certain rules that he abides by and certain rules that the devil abides by, that there is a battle going on back and forth. And God is a just God, and God always plays fair. It's got to allow this to, to run its course because the great controversy that we know in Seventh-day Adventism, the cosmic conflict that describes this battle between God and Satan, it is not a battle of power because God could snap his fingers and take care of the enemy. But God has not because the impetus of the battle is not power but one of love. And perfect love casts out fear. And if God were to completely rid everything out, we would be tempted to serve him out of fear instead of out of love. And so he has to let things play out. That's what's hindering Paul from going. We don't know the specifics of it other than Paul stands up and he says, the only reason that I'm not in Thessalonica is that the enemy of God has done something to block me from going. It calls for discernment, right? There's other times in Acts where, where Paul stands up and says, we were about to go into this place, but the Holy Spirit says, no, I need you to go over here. And Paul will differentiate between those two in his ministry. And it calls for us to have discernment from the power of the Holy Spirit, whether God is closing the door or the enemy is closing the door. And far too often we, play, we blame the devil for the actings of God, and far too often we blame God for the actings of the devil. We have to wrestle with that. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are longing to go. Here's the other thing about that battle. Paul knows who wins. Silas and Timothy know who win. They make that abundantly clear in the following verses and the rest of First and Second Thessalonians. And here's what we must understand. Even in the midst of our darkest moments, even in, in the midst of incredible trials where it feels like, it, it, whether it's God or the devil, oh, I'm frustrated. Jesus is Lord. He and his church will be triumphant. In the end, the devil loses. You see, the devil can only hinder for a short time. He not, cannot complain, cannot hold us for an eternity because it's God who ultimately will win the victory. And here's the turn in the verses that we're looking at today in 1 Thessalonians that brings this cosmic conflict, this great controversy into center. Paul doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about the hindrance that Satan has caused because quite frankly, he does, it doesn't matter. Giving credence to it only adds more fuel to the fire, and the devil says, hey, yeah, I got you. And Paul says, no, absolutely not. After all, what gives us hope and joy, and what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus when he returns? It is you, church of Thessalonica. Yes, you are our pride and joy. 
Paul and his fellow writers turn from the hindrance of Satan and look forward and have a view of the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's our hope. It's our joy. It's you, church. doesn't matter what happens. It's you that are our hope and our joy. That longing that he has for the church in Thessalonica is surrounded by that one day when we see Jesus face to face. And he says, it doesn't matter if we're separated for an eternity here on this earth. I know one day we will spend eternity together. And that's the view that Paul and his brothers have in mind for the church in Thessalonica. Another commentator and prolific writer within Adventism, George Knight, comments that 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19 is the hinge upon which every other verse in 1 and 2 Thessalonians swing. What gives us hope and joy and what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus when he returns? It's you. When Paul looks towards the second coming of Jesus, he sees the church of Thessalonica. Paul is not worried about how many sermons he's preached. He's not worried about how many church services he's attended, how many cans of food he's passed out, what denomination he was in, how clean and pressed his shirts or his tunic was, how well he could make haystacks. He'd probably make a mean haystack. Some of you do too. He was not worried about how well he could argue against or for the ordination of women in ministry. His single focus in light of the return of Jesus Christ was that the church of Thessalonica would be there on that day. That no matter what came about, he says, our hope and our joy is in you. I rejoice because you found a savior in Jesus Christ. I rejoice because the Holy Spirit is with you. And I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, what keeps me going every single day is that you found me. We're separated for a moment. But a day is coming when we will no longer be separated. Thessalonians, you are my hope and joy. You are my proud reward and my crown. It's you. Paul defines his entire life's value in the Thessalonian people. This guy says, guys, we'll get, we'll get through this. The one thing I'm concerned about is you. I like how Stott puts it further down on the page in page 63 of his commentary. What Paul seems to mean in this transport of love as he's opened up his heart and says, we've been separated, is that his joy in this world and his glory in the next are tied up with the Thessalonians whom Christ, through the apostles' ministry, has so signally transformed. Church, we've, we've got some work to do. There's some things that we have to wrestle with, but what we have to do is fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and worry not about our differences, but worry about how we are helping each other, making sure we're there on that day. Paul concludes, I imagine he might have been humming this tune probably before it was even written. As he's writing to the church in Thessalonica, I've got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. He probably didn't say it like that, right? I've got the joy, 
I've got the joy, joy, joy down in my heart because I know that one day when Jesus makes everything right, we are going to be together. Paul sees Jesus coming again. He sees the church in Thessalonica. And from this pastor's heart, to those of you gathered in Keene, to the church of Keene, to the church of Elevate, my pride and joy, what I look forward to one day, that though we might have been separated for a year, maybe some of us are still online and we're separated, that one day Jesus is going to come back and make all things new. And no matter what separation that we've experienced recently or in times gone by, Jesus will make all things new and bring us back together. So in light of the second coming of Jesus, in light of the terrible things to come before we get there, when was the last time you rejoiced? That you put your arms out or up, not too high, right? You gotta be theologically correct. And you basked in the glory of God and in the beauty of the body of Christ as expressed by this gathering and the other services we have here in this community. When was the last time you rejoiced? That you shouted from the highest that, God, I'm so excited because I know that there's a group of people that sold out on you, Jesus, and you're working in their life to bring about good things. My hope and joy in the meantime is in this community and the glory that we will one day be enraptured with when Jesus comes back is not anything that we have accomplished, but the beauty that we will be together with our King. You're going to hear some music in a moment that will give you an opportunity to respond to this message. And then the praise team is going to come up and, and lead us through two more songs. And I want to invite you this morning, as you're contemplating this and you're asking yourself, when was the last time you rejoiced? Maybe today, right here, right now, whether it's been a long time since you rejoiced, this is the time where we just kind of say, you know, we're not going to look side to side at each other. If it's hands here, if it's hands here, if it's this, if it's that, if it's, you know, behind, looking down, whatever it is, that we as a community worship our God who gives us joy, who gives us hope because he has called us to him. Let's pray. God, thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you for the heart of Paul as he's writing to this church, saying my hope and joy is in them. God, may we experience that joy today. May we come to a fuller understanding of who you are and carry ourselves through with a view of your return. And not rejoicing in the fact that we've accomplished much, but that you have done even more to bring your people back to you. God, one day when we're face to face, may we rejoice together as a community. In Jesus' name I pray. You know, it's pretty crazy to think that we as the church are the hope and the joy until Jesus returns. Some days, I don't know about you, but it's hard for me to feel that hope or that joy. I look for it in worldly things or in other things. But the amazing fact is that no matter what, God will persevere. And 
An even cooler part is that we can turn to our brothers and sisters in Christ and find that hope and joy. Thank you so much for listening to this message of Elevate Retake. I hope that you tune in later this week where Pastor Michael and a few others will dig deeper into the word and really dissect what it means to have the joy, 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 and maybe when the last time was, they rejoiced. Again, thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you later.